We're concluding Joseph's life today, this little series that's taken us through September and October, the gospel according to Jacob and Joseph. And if you, if you wanted an epitaph uh, for Joseph's life, certainly uh, Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 uh, is that epitaph. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's, that's the, the fulcrum through which you, you interpret Joseph's story. And reading verse 20 there as Wade did, we might recall when we were in uh, Romans 8, uh, this time last year, you don't have to re- uh, recall all the way back to last year, Romans 8, 28 was read at the beginning of the service by Ken, uh, that verse of scripture that says, and we know, this is Romans 8, 28, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And so we see now in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, that wasn't a new thought when Paul penned it to the Romans. It's, it's almost like uh, Romans 8:28 has an ancestor. <laughs> it's Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. You meant evil. God meant good. That doesn't mean the evil thing isn't still evil. It doesn't make the evil thing okay. But we, we tend to underthink evil anyway. I mean, we're aware of it. We know it's in the world. We hopefully know it's in our own hearts. But we still underthink evil. If I asked you to describe evil, would you think to include in your description how the need to accomplish something can be evil? Do you, remind, do you realize how much of the world's evil is driven by those who have a need to achieve something? those who must accomplish something. Evil is not just the, uh, the things that, that are in their most depraved condition. What, what Joseph's brothers did to him is evil. Everybody says so in the text, including them. And, and why? Why did Joseph's brothers do to him as they did? He was in their way for achieving for themselves something they wanted. So evil works. Now, there's a way of coming at this, and we talked about it last year when we were in Romans chapter 8, and I'll refresh it with the the Joseph story. There's a way of coming at what Joseph says here in verse 20, where we look to connect the dots. Uh, We sort of put this line of dominoes together, and and one falls into the next, and and they all fall in, in a sequence. This happened So then that would happen, and then that happened, and now I see why it all happened. Now, now it's all okay, it all all worked out. That kind of uh, linear progression, it doesn't always follow, however. Even though Joseph could trace, Joseph could, he could trace the God, uh, the good that God did for him. It, It wasn't a straight line, point A to point B to point C, and so on, kind of good. You know, we get, we look at his story and, and we see, well, I, I get now why he was sold into slavery. That was in order to get him to Egypt. And then he would rise to incredible power there. And God, through him, would employ the resources of, of Egypt. And when, and when I say back in, in that time when there was Egypt and everybody else, uh, it, it's not like the SEC, there's Alabama and LSU and everybody else. Uh, it, it's, there was Egypt and there was nothing, okay? And so Egypt had everything that we don't really understand superpower the way that, that, that ancient Egypt embodied superpower. And so God got his man there, but for what purpose is imprisonment? It can be for 14 years. 
due to false charges. Ridiculous. For what purpose did that serve? See, that's a dot out of sequence if you're always going linear. This happened and then that happened and then that happened and then I know now why it all happened. And most people, when we're wondering why God allowed something we didn't want to have happen, for most people, that's not an intellectual consideration anyway. It's a, it's a very emotional thing. I'm not saying we don't want to understand what happens to us, but linear thinking, connecting the dot, that rarely helps, if ever. Nor does papering over evil help. Like when we tell ourselves, well, you know, many have it worse than I do, so why am I, so why would I complain about that? Well, we, we minimize our pain, a lot of us. We stuff it. And I know, because I, I'm the chief of, of stuffers. Or we might put pressure on ourselves to, to land on a reason. Uh, we, we've got to know something, anything, to make sense out of what otherwise seems random. So we don't waste the pain because, you know, somebody told us, we heard it on a TED talk, you know, don't waste the pain. And we thought, well, that sounds wise, so I won't waste the pain. Or the, uh, you've heard of optical illusions. You've got the optimist illusion. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, we tell ourselves. We turn our bad thing into a motivational poster. Now, I, I'm not... I, I don't want you to hear me being dismissive of that as, as much as I, like I sound like I am. I'm not as dismissive of that in actual experience. I'm just saying it's, it's not the perspective Joseph took. Perspective is God-given as well. I was reading recently about a woman who turned the, the evil that happened to her. It was a cascade of evil in her life. She's forever been marked by it. And, and what I was reading about was in her words of how she's turned that into good for, for others, uh, what she does now for, for people, and yet she lost her faith in the process. She's not wallowing in the things that happened to her, but she does blame God for allowing those things, for not preventing them, for not helping her. And so while she's making lemonade in the great American tradition of pulling yourself up by your, your bootstraps, her lemonade is from synthetic lemons grown in her own lab. A lot of people do that. And I don't want to be heard. Again, I, please don't hear me faulting people for trying to rise above the things that, that get them down and, and finding uh, means. And we do see, again, I, I, you look at the passage, Joseph has been able to connect the dots. Why he was sold into slavery some very positive outcomes, but just don't think that made everything okay. What Joseph had to experience was bad for a long time. And he had the option in it when it was bad. He had the option to reject the God of his father. To conclude, you know, that God must not be the God of slaves and prisoners. That must be the God of the... Uh, the wilderness, the God who speaks in dreams but is powerless to do much of anything else. Fourteen years in prison? You don't think that thought maybe occurred? We don't know that it didn't. What we do see, though, is he had the option. Everybody has the option, particularly if you feel completely abandoned by God. And Egypt offered alternative gods that pretty much let you do anything you wanted. 
It's what most alternative gods are, are there for. And Joseph was so powerful, in fact, he could have made himself an object of veneration if he wanted to. There was a long history preceding his time. And I mean, Egypt is the oldest, the world's oldest monarchy. And there was a, a, a tradition of, the, of the, the pharaohs making themselves the object of worship. Nebuchadnezzar-like, that Babylonian king that we think of in Daniel. So it's all the more remarkable in a totally pagan culture like ancient Egypt that this guy not only holds to the God of his father, but the God of his father who sent him through incredible suffering. Let's see a couple of things here. Why Joseph held on. I'll just show you two things from uh, this last part of his narrative. We'll look at how Joseph took something from God, and then we'll look at how Joseph left something to God. Simply put, Joseph took something from God and he left something to God. That's what we see here in this interaction with his brothers here in chapter 50. The reason Joseph belongs to God more than Egypt, the reason his undeserving brothers become the recipients of his incredible grace, and that is the point of grace, is because Joseph took something from God. We see that in verse 20, namely he took God's view and verses 19 and 21 on the other side of verse 20, he left something to God and that was God's judgment. God's ability to make justice happen out of whatever situation is unjust. Let's take these one, two. We'll look at how Joseph took something from God and how Joseph left something to God. First, Joseph took something from God. This is why he held on. He took God's view. We see it there in verse 20. Look at it again. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And that's, just, that's not just taking the long view. When I say that, that he took what he took from God was his view of things, the way God looks at things. It's not just taking the long view, which God takes, being infinite in patience, but it's also that he took, um, he, he took the view that you look below the surface of things. Look up, back up at verse 15. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did for, to him. Look at words repeated and you get this word evil repeated. They use the same word Joseph did, evil. We know the brothers put words in Jacob's mouth. Verse 17, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because of the evil they did to you. Note the, the, the repeat, transgression, sin, evil. They're putting words in Jacob's mouth, but we know a few chapters back when Jacob learned the story of what his sons actually did to his son Joseph, he would have agreed that it was evil. And the verse 17 at the, the end says that J Jacob, w Joseph wept when they spoke to him this way. It's the, it's the fourth time in the narrative overall that he breaks down. And this is an aside, but there is a remarkable emotional health 
in this ruler. And he weeps here because he, he knows now with his father dead, where Wade started the passage in, in verse 12, is right preceding that, is the death of, of Jacob and, and the instructions that Jacob gives to his sons and, and what he wants to have happen. And, and Joseph weeps into verse 17 because he knows with his father dead, the brothers fear Joseph turning on them. He's going to get his vengeance now. He was just being kind to us because dad. And now with dad out of the picture, he's going to get even. And, that's just, and, and Joseph weeps because that's just nowhere near his intentions. He's completely misunderstood. Aren't we always strangers to grace? Always. But let's underscore in the verses we just read, looking at verses 15 through 20, roughly in there, 21, no one is trying to mute what Joseph had to forgive. No one's sugarcoating it. No one's papering over it. He was subjected to evil in all caps. Everyone says so. He says it. His brothers say it. No one's papering over it. No one is trying to do what a lot of us do as moderns living in a, a very materialistic age. We, we sort of get this idea, well, Joseph, I mean, things have worked out, you know, so obviously well for you. You couldn't still be mad about this, could you? See, that perspective assumes that the wounds inflicted on us by others evil. In Joseph's case, the wounds his brothers inflicted on him the Potiphar's, what they did to him. There's, there's this assumption that material abundance can heal that. We want to believe rags to riches makes everything better because we are that materialistic. The fact that Joseph now lived in opulence as the viceroy of Egypt, that made everything better? I don't think so. See, if that's true, that power and prestige make it easier to forgive, or that power and prestige bring, bring healing, then why does anyone with celebrity or wealth or power or all of the above ever despair or ever clutch uh, grudges? I'll give you an example. I, my son and I, my youngest son, Colson, we were talking recently about great basketball players. And the great basketball player of my generation was Michael Jordan, hands down. And I was uh, telling Colson uh, about Michael Jordan. I was, I was saying, you know, he was, a, he was a marvelous basketball player, but, but the guy's got uh, some really prominent flaws, one of which being uh, he remembers everything anyone has ever done to him. He's very petty. Uh, Charles Barkley one time said, um, Michael Jordan ought to get a dog so he won't be angry all the time. He said he was too serious. When Michael Jordan was giving his Basketball Hall of Fame induction speech, you can go research this, he made sure to call out the coach who cut him in high school and the player who got put onto the squad in his place. He hung on to that. It's, it's not a rise to prominence and power and prestige. If you're looking to that to heal you, you're in for an even worse disappointment. 
It wasn't Joseph's rise to prominence and all the accoutrements of that 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 healed him. Some of the most miserable people have ever lived are people who rose to prominence and power only to curse it or curse others with it because it it didn't fill them. It didn't satisfy them like they needed it to and they they still hung on to old stuff in the sense that they're, they're still trying to prove it to somebody from their 10th grade year to stick it to them. It's pitiful. So so don't think on this like a materialist. A materialist says, well, Joseph is in the lap of luxury now. Why wouldn't he be forgiving? Because, you know, as if money and power and fame, all that heals the heart. I, I don't think so. And don't think on this like an atheist either, making lemonade out of your synthetic lemons. A percentage of modern people who claim atheism or agnosticism, a percentage of them, I don't know what the percentage is, but I know a percentage of them are deconverts from Christianity. Ex-evangelicals, as they're called, some of them. And a lot of times inside that percentage, again, I I don't have uh, figures here, but inside that percentage of people who, who used to be in and now are not are, are people who only see the surface of things. And only looking at the surface of things, it seems to them that no one is in charge. That's why they gave it up. Do you realize on the cross, Jesus himself felt that? Father, why have you forsaken me? He said that. It feels like no one is in charge right now. It's another way of putting it. Jesus asks why he has been abandoned and yet still obeys. Doesn't ask to be taken off of the cross, but says, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. And he stayed there until the work was done. It is finished. There are a number of people who used to be in our churches who've said of their faith, their, their old faith now, it's finished. It's, it's behind me. It's not what I believe anymore. I no longer have it. And among them are always those who just could not or would not take God's view under the surface that the, the evil and the suffering it causes is an indelible part for now of a world that is truly fallen, eagerly awaiting its redemption, which means evil, while it gets its blows in right now, it does not have the final word. We're told in the New Testament, God is reconciling the world to himself. It it harkens back to this story. We're told that in in 2 Corinthians, that God is reconciling the world to himself. And and you think, ding, ding, ding. I've got a picture back in the Old Testament of that. Joseph reconciling his brothers to himself. But how God does this, this is what's incredible. How God reconciles the world to himself is by letting Evil do its worst to him and yet bringing ultimate good from that, which is our redemption. And even the world's ultimate good from that, it's renewal. When Jesus returns and speaks over the whole world order, behold, I am making all things new. Revelation 21. This table that we'll come to in a little bit, this table is to stoke your longing for that day. Because here it is, when we take these elements together, 
minutes from now, we will proclaim the Lord's death in the act of taking the elements. And in proclaiming the Lord's death, we are saying through that is, is by, by way I have forgiveness and reconciliation to the God to whom I have only done evil. And all he had to do was judge and condemn. That's his prerogative, his right as creator. God, uh, the creator can do anything with his creation that he wants to do. But like Joseph with his brothers who deserve vengeance, white, hot, Joseph pulls them close. There's an emphasis throughout the narrative of Joseph getting physically in proximity next to his brothers, getting near them. This is the second time at least in the narrative where Joseph comes down to where they are and gathers them around himself to touch him. Proximity of, of nearness. Don't miss the beauty in that. And this takes us to our second takeaway of two. I mentioned that Joseph took something from God, that is, he took his view, that's verse 20. And Joseph left something to God, that is, God's judgment. That God is a better justice maker than I am. See, that's why Joseph forgives his brothers. Uh, forgiveness is always, whether it takes you a long time to get to it or you get to it pretty quickly, regardless, it is always an act of trust that God is a greater justice maker than I am. No matter what it is that we have to forgive. And, and, and it wasn't an antiseptic forgiveness, as I was just mentioning, that keeps its distance. But it's a, a forgiveness that even weeps for, for the, these, these ones he's drawing near himself, but they, they can't forgive themselves. Look at it. Verse 19. Joseph, I mean, they've come in in verse 18. They've, they fell down before him. They, we're, we're your servants. The sense of that is we're slaves. That's what we're good for. And he says, don't fear. I, 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 am I in the place of God? And he takes God's view, verse 20, that we already looked at, and verse 21, so do not fear. Emphasis on don't fear. By the way, what is it that Jesus says to us over and over and over again as an imperative in the Gospels? Don't fear. Don't fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What's going on here? Brothers can't forgive themselves. I've heard this treated in all kinds of directions. They're still conniving. They're still, the brothers can't forgive themselves. They know what they have done to their brother is really unforgivable. I mean, you talk about betrayal and turning your back on family. Some of us have, uh, have, we've come from families where there's this really heavy sense of you don't turn your back on the family and the family comes first. And well, well you know, whether that was ever stated or not, this is the patriarch, this is Jacob's sons. These are the 12 tribe namesakes. And they did this to Joseph. And it's, you don't just get over that. But have, have you ever had someone tell you they can't forgive themselves? Or, or maybe you feel that today. We make that worse, actually, if we go around saying, well, you can't forgive others, you know, until you've forgiven yourself. That's total nonsense. Uh, many times I have more grace for others than I keep for myself. But this is an issue for a lot of us. What the brothers are displaying, 
And often those of us who, who do this to ourselves kind of bear the grudge against ourselves, and I count myself one. It's because often our character was formed around a high sense of moral responsibility, a high revving moral motor, uh, the need to do a lot right. And we did. We were good boys and girls until we didn't, until we did something wrong. You know, we, uh, we said something hurtful that stuck into somebody, caused them to bleed. We, we made an out-of-character decision, and somebody expressed surprise. I'm really surprised that you would say that. I'm surprised you would do that. Tisk tisk tisk, you know. Or, or uh, you know, we made a big mistake. Uh, and maybe someone close to us, a parent or, or a church leader we respected, shamed us. And we felt even worse experiencing the shaming because we were shaming ourselves <laughs> just fine before somebody else did. And now we know we disappointed them, but we, we disappointed ourselves pretty heavily. Maybe I'm only describing myself. But those of us who were good boys and girls and still try to be even as adults, you know what we find it so hard to admit? That we're human. There's something about growing up in church and, and coming along with knowing the gospel your whole life that, that, make, that makes you miss that you're human. And when we get disgusted with ourselves, we do what Joseph's brothers did. This is our impulse. We come and throw ourselves before God Stop calling me your son. I'm a slave. Treat me like that. That's what I deserve. And though there might be a, a handful of people in your life who would say, yeah, that is what you deserve. The anti-Josephs in your life. There's one who doesn't say this. He's never said it. And he's the greater Joseph. And only his opinion really counts. Like Joseph in Genesis, Jesus had the right he had the ability and he had the opportunity to say to every one of us in here, I'm going to make you my slaves for what you did to me. And, you know, there is that New Testament language. I'm a slave of Christ, which gets to his ownership of us and, and his authority over us. But Jesus says we're more than just servants. We're also his friends and even his brothers, sons and daughters of God. He talks about this. And so do the apostles all through the New Testament. And I just wonder, I wonder for myself as well as for others, I wonder why we find it so hard to believe that he, is, he isn't interested in slave driving us. When we know, if we know, that he went to such pains for us, sacrificing himself in our place to free us of every kind of condemnation that we can know, including self-condemnation, which for some of us is the strongest kind. Those of us who are so hard on ourselves, we, we want the greater Joseph to give us what our sins deserve when we're in that guilt and shame because we think, that's what I, that's, you know, I, I can't beat this, I, I have this problem. That impulse is ultimately because we really do think we have to save ourselves in the end. We're moralists to the end. Just like the brothers. The brothers feel like they got to do something. Joseph has been nothing but gracious to them and they come here at the end they're in and they think we gotta try to make you know we gotta try to do something to make sure that he doesn't change his mind 
And the response that they get is the response of God to his people. Joseph is he's just playing this out. He's working this out. You read the story and you get impressed with Joseph. Sure, he's an impressive guy. But you get more impressed with realizing he's doing what Jesus Christ does. And does to an even greater degree. Joseph bears his likeness. See, they, they want to save themselves, these brothers, and, and, and that pained their Savior who weeps for them. It's like it pains ours. Because what we need from him, we don't, you know, what, what we need is judgment. And that's what we don't get. We get grace. He takes the judgment. And he offers us kindness, his kindness. And we have to stop fighting that and receive it. Not so we give ourselves permission to do whatever we want to do or give ourselves a pass on on things we need to work on and repent of and submit to God. But grace, you see it in this story, and this is our story writ large. Grace is for drawing us near to God through a greater Joseph who drew near to us so that now we seek from Jesus and we find in Jesus what we no longer have to go looking for from evil of all kinds. Would you pray with me? Lord, we know these things. We've known them, some of us, our entire lives. But it doesn't drill down. And we pray your spirit will do that work of bringing us into the place where, where we, we don't throw ourselves before you as those who are proving the sincerity of our repentance and trying to, to work things to our favor because we can't forgive ourselves. We carry all this guilt. Lord, and rather you would teach us how to cast our cares, including these cares, on you and to collapse on Jesus and let you be who you are in our lives, our Savior. I pray for those in particular who are caught and bound by strategies of self-salvation that this would be a day of liberation, a day of realizing that though the way remains hard and difficult and there are things in our lives we don't want, the one thing we don't have to deal with is condemnation. But our own self-condemnation can be so strong, that voice so loud. Lord, bring us back again and again and again that you speak to us a good word, a word of peace, a word of kindness, a word that our judgment has been paid for in full, and therefore we have grace upon grace from you. And as we go into communion now, Lord, when we take these elements, the bread and the cup, would you stoke our longing to be in that place where there is no more weeping,
And there is no more sin and there is no more suffering. Thank you for how you bring that close to us in these moments. And Lord, thank you for uh, your sacrifice on our behalf. That you were willing to give yourself so that we might have life and peace with God. Thank you for a tangible act, a tangible expression that is a couple of swallows ingesting something that it becomes very personal to us whatever we ingest and and in this moment as we take these elements we pray Lord that you will preach the gospel to us again within our spirit and we thank you for the work you've accomplished for us that's can't be undone by anyone including ourselves thank you for grace sufficient for grace abundant And for all the ways you remind us and keep us mindful of your greatness and your glory. And that we get to share in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.